the loved ones we've lost. It was hard because I couldn't touch him. I couldn't tell him how much I loved him. We can't unsee what we've seen, which is just pure devastation. The toll it's taken. The last two years has been very overwhelming. I definitely got depressed. It's a struggle on our mental health. It's a struggle on our relationships. It's a struggle on our finances. There are so many things. How we've rethought our lives. The great resignation did not tell the full story. It really should be referred to as the great reevaluation. Join us as we examine the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. From ABC News, this is COVID-19, two years, one million lives. Here is correspondent Alex Stone. These are the grim sounds of COVID-19. The machines had fought so hard to keep mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters alive. Over one million Americans have now died from the virus. Two years ago, that number seemed unimaginable. One million families impacted forever. When the tent went up, was that unbelievable in your medical career? Only a few months ago, the area I'm standing in was essentially a battlefield hospital. I'm in the parking lot here at Cedar sinai Hospital in Marina Del Rey, California. It was a giant tent with patients being triaged inside, and Dr. Oren Friedman was on the front lines as medical director of the ICU. So there certainly were a lot of patients that were waiting to be seen. Of course, we're lucky to be in Los Angeles that it was feasible to have people outside, which because of the ventilation, et cetera, is going to be a whole lot better in terms of infectious precautions and transmissibility, and there's definite advantages out there. Um, but this particular tent here outside would have uh, been filled with patients that were coming in with various amounts of respiratory complaints and otherwise suspicious for, um, for having COVID that were awaiting testing and waiting to get into the hospital. Today, the big tent is gone. There's a smaller one in its place where a trickle of COVID patients coming in can wait until there's room inside. Most of the area today has been taken over by construction equipment to make the hospital quite a bit bigger. It's a sign of rebirth. The staff here sees it as new hope after a very dark period in their medical careers. Just the amount of patients that we had that needed uh, hospital support and certainly the amount of patients that needed ICU support, it, it, there's never been anything like that. I mean, that, that's just such a, such a huge number. We really never, never felt that way before. This is what you do. Was there a time when, when even you were scared and confused and not knowing what, where this was going? You know, when I look back on those early months where we didn't even know how to test for the virus, we certainly didn't know how to treat the virus, we certainly didn't know how infectious the virus was and how easy it was to transmit, it, it, it was overwhelming, uh, I think, for any, anyone in the healthcare field. However, we relied on each other. We relied on as much of the literature that was coming out, you know, and we formed groups and committees of people that constantly reviewed the literature and the latest um, that was coming out of the, uh, from, the, from, the, from the science of it. And we continually adopted. But I don't think any of us have ever been in a situation where we had so many people that we were taking care of with a disease that was so novel um, and with the information that was just coming out like sort of at lightning speed. Dr. Friedman has a unique perspective. A pulmonary specialist, he saw what was happening to patients' lungs early on in the pandemic. He got COVID and struggled to recover. And he went to New York during the height of spread there, witnessing the horrors of COVID running rampant in a large population. You know, the last two years have been the most challenging 
time for anyone, certainly in my generation, in, in uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine. In some sense, when we all look back at it, it's, it's a bit like uh, being in an alternate universe. Um, I don't think any of us ever uh, saw so many patients coming in with such a volume, um, certainly of one particular disease. Certainly none of us ever saw the healthcare system so impacted and, and so overwhelmed. So I think it's going to leave a, a, a permanent mark, I think, in all of our careers. And I think moving forward, we're never going to quite be the same. My fellow Americans. In the early months, so much was unknown. The virus was spreading so rapidly without a vaccine and without many precautions being taken, and many were dying. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. COVID was killing in Italy and in New York. In mid-March of 2020, President Trump declared a national emergency. Predictions of 100,000 could die were discounted by some, but the numbers kept rising. And on the front lines, doctors and nurses were at war. In the last two years, it's been very overwhelming and can be frightening. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was unknown, so we kind of didn't know how to deal with COVID. Morgan Roverud is a nurse in the ICU at Cedars-Sinai. It was definitely scary. A lot of the times I, you know, felt like, how can I do this? But I think with a lot of like the teamwork aspect, especially here at Marina Del Rey, the teamwork and the friendships that you form with the staff and um, other leadership, um, when you feel supported, it just makes everything easier. And it's that teamwork, learning from one another, when so much was unknown that the medical staff says made the difference. When the ICU was overwhelmed, patients were dying and numbers were rising, they were learning. There was a cohesiveness, I suppose, because everyone, everyone was on this uh, same mission together, you know, to take care of all these patients. But it was also sad and at times... It, it felt hopeless. It felt like, are, are we going to make it out of this as a society? Uh, people are just getting sick left and right and dying left and right. Are we ever going to get out of this? That wave of death that Dr. Friedman saw unfolding in New York, he knew was coming to California and elsewhere. And it did wave after wave. And essentially, whenever a patient would check in with any sort of COVID-like symptom, immediately they would get escorted into one of these tents. And there was always a one registered nurse. The halls here at Cedar sinai would also become full. The sound of ventilators at work filled the hallways. COVID was killing Americans, but many didn't see it happening or notice refrigerated trucks or body bags that were being brought in. We never quite seen that many patients that were that critically ill on ventilators uh, before. Um, so first of all, it was it was exhausting. The days were long. Everybody was working um, extra shifts, extra hours. People were doubling up on shifts. People were having to be creative, had to marshal resources. In March of 2020, the pandemic became real for many Americans, with schools closing, theme parks shutting down, stores being told to lock their doors, and NBA games being canceled at tip-off. You see the officials conferring here prior to the start of this game. But it didn't take long for restrictions to become political. By mid-April, President Trump was tweeting for states to be liberated, telling Americans to ignore rules and saying the virus will go away. Dr. Friedman says it was difficult to walk out of the hospital here and see people ignoring medical guidance. Probably one of the hardest things, I think, out of any of the healthcare workers, certainly those of us who worked in the intensive care unit, um, there was a temptation, I think, from all of us to run out there and scream and shake people and 
tell people? Do you realize how bad this can be? Do you realize what it looks like inside of the hospital? You should be wearing masks. You should be getting vaccinated. Um, it was enormously frustrating. Um, it made our jobs even that much more difficult because it was, it was sort of felt like you were fighting a war, but when you returned home from the battle, people just simply didn't believe that war was even occurring. And now today, after so much heartache and so many Americans lost to the virus, Dr. Friedman saying a big number of the deaths could have been prevented, the hope that maybe we're done with the worst of it and we can live with COVID. With the vaccines that still work well against variants and the increase in um, antiviral medications that we now have, we should hopefully be able to control some of those numbers better than we have in the past. Now the big tent at this hospital has come down. It's quieter. There are still COVID patients, but not as many. And there is hope and rebirth. Kind of like even like the mask kind of mask mandate lifting. It's kind of like, wow, like, okay, are we, we're coming into a time where we have enough vaccinated individuals in, you know, the United States. It's safe now to kind of go resume our normal life. See, I think a lot of us were happy about that. But they have so many scars from all of the lives lost. It's a staggering number. Uh, I think it's a number that most people have a hard time fathoming, even what a million people would look like. Um, and I think it's, it's also really disappointing as a medical provider to realize that many of those deaths probably didn't need to have happened. Coming up, we examine the mental impact of the pandemic. This ABC News special, COVID-19, two years, one million lives, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, two years, one million lives. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. This milestone that we're at of one million people lost to COVID is heartbreaking enough, but many health experts say we will be feeling the residual effects of the pandemic for years to come, not only in terms of those who are gone, but in terms of those left behind. Since March of 2020, many of us have experienced feelings of worry, stress, anxiety, grief. Mental health experts say lots of Americans are struggling with those emotions, but at the same time, many are also realizing the importance of taking care of their mental health. And that leads to another feeling, hope. Here's ABC's Sherry Preston. Paige Nelson is a traveling nurse who came from Canada to New York City during the very first COVID wave in April and May of 2020. She left her two young sons and her husband behind. And as I'm flying into New York, I had this moment of like, what on earth am I doing? Like, I've never been to New York City. I've never been in a gigantic city before. And then I had this like calm and this peace come over me like, you're here for a reason. They need your help. Just know that this is what you're supposed to be doing. She stayed for eight weeks in the intensive care unit at Hackensack Meridian Health in New Jersey. When she returned home, she knew things had changed. I thought it was okay. You know, like, I'm a nurse. Like, this is what we do is kind of like what I told myself. But I definitely got depressed. And um, I ended up needing counseling. And um, I started speaking with a lady who deals with trauma specifically. And uh, she diagnosed me with PTSD. Once she explained it to me, of course, I was like, yeah, that's uh, all the symptoms that I'm dealing with. Not everyone who has struggled to maintain their mental health during the pandemic has had post-traumatic stress disorder. 
but a lot of us are still struggling with everything that's happened. According to the World Health Organization, in the first year of the pandemic alone, there was a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. Dr. Dave Choksi was New York City's health commissioner during the pandemic. He says even members of his own family felt the effects. It's hard not to, you know, get emotional when you think about about all of those effects and the loss, you know, that so many, so many people have experienced. In fact, Choksi says the epidemic of depression has taken a toll that may not be talked about as frequently, but is still there. Just as much as a virus does or a heart disease does, um, loneliness and isolation are health issues uh, and they have an impact on how we feel and our well-being. In the beginning, it was losing jobs and livelihoods and learning to work from home, sometimes while taking care of children, sometimes completely alone. Then as more people became sick, more of us lost relatives and friends. All of it has been a lot, says Dr. Amy Service, director of clinical content at the online therapy platform Talkspace. It's a struggle on our mental health. It's a struggle on our relationships. It's a struggle on our finances. There are so many things um, that are all incorporated into one. Her app lets people reach out when they need help. And she says people have certainly been doing that. Sometimes, though, it's hard to ask for help. Dimple Cavati Berger is an integrated wellness coach from Creskill, New Jersey. She says her clients aren't necessarily telling her they need professional help. But I have seen just in my clients alone, people asking for more referrals. You know, people just starting to recognize that there's a fear that is that is lingering within them or there's just, you know, this feeling of just wanting to be done with this whole period. Part of the increase in stress, anxiety and depression is that we humans are perpetual worriers. And part of the reason for that, experts say, is the ceaseless flow of information we're constantly getting from our phones. Throughout the pandemic, how many of you found yourselves checking the latest numbers on COVID infections, hospitalizations and deaths? Ohio State psychology professor Dr. Kenneth Yeager says the phenomenon of endlessly checking your phone and seeing negative news is called doom scrolling. We are negative animals. Uh, we're drawn to the negative. We are drawn to see the negative. We're intrigued by it. But the, the phenomena of doom scrolling is something that has such a negative impact on the mental health of the individual. And while you don't initially understand or see it happening, you begin to view the world as a much less safe place. And there's this insidious way that doom scrolling or giving attention to the negativity without balancing it with the positive has of impacting the human sense of safety and well-being. That's why it's so important to balance the emotions that we experience with the positive as well as the negative. The collective trauma we've all experienced is also not exclusive to adults. These past two years have been so hard on younger people that the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychology, and the Children's Hospital Association have all declared a national emergency in children's mental health, citing the pandemic in addition to other challenges that younger Americans were already facing. Being out of school and away from face-to-face -face contact from friends has been huge. Student mental health is just one of the multiple things the nation's schools have been facing since the original lockdowns in March of 2020 when the pandemic first began. With more on how all of it has upended the American education system, here's ABC's Michelle Franzen. Sherry, whether it's high school, middle, or elementary level, COVID twisted the learning curve for tens of thousands of students. It was a nightmare. I felt really bad. 
because I felt like they would think it was a reflection on me. Francie Haskell's son Joseph fell behind when New York City went into lockdowns and switched to remote learning, tuning out when he logged on for classes, sometimes playing video games and more times than not missing assignments. I think the problem was he was getting distracted. Haskell says she didn't learn Joseph had fallen behind until later. He's having to repeat seventh grade, so he's doing seventh and eighth grade at the same time right now. She says her younger son Samuel took to remote learning more easily and his grades did not slide. The Center for School and Student Progress tracks school testing and performance. A December report showed middle school kids nationwide scored between 9 and 11 percentile points lower in math during the pandemic and between 3 and 7 points lower in reading compared to historic averages. Another study shows testing scores from 2019 to 2021. One in three elementary students from kindergarten through third grade fell below the reading averages and need intensive training to achieve goals at their grade level. Many teachers saw the wave coming. In Indianapolis, Chrissy Franz teaches third grade at Emmadonan Elementary and Middle School, helping students build their literacy skills. I've noticed a big impact on my scholars as a result of the pandemic. Scholars who are learning from home, learning all these sounds and learning um, all these concepts, but with a mask over our faces. Cassandra Gentry also noticed. She lives in Washington, D.C. and is a reading tutor. She's also a grandmother who's raising her 11-year-old granddaughter, Jada, and trying to help her catch up. I'm just trying to get her to know that once she reads, she can get so much knowledge from reading. And it makes you feel so much better about yourself. The pandemic took a toll on both students and teachers. Nobody was prepared for uh, for COVID to happen. Patrick Quinn is a parenting expert at Brainly, an educational resource for students and teachers. It took a little while for all of the school districts all across the country to figure out what their plan was, to figure out a new way of, you know, of getting the message, getting the teaching out to the kids. And then from there, it trickles down to the actual teachers. He says their research echoes similar studies showing students already challenged with lack of academic support or access to computers during remote learning were likely impacted even more. You kind of see the anxiety levels raise up the further along in the school they are, um, because then things become a little more real. You know, there's there's actual consequences for maybe not getting into a college you want to get to into or you know, understanding that your professional life, your early professional life is going to be affected by what you're doing now. But Quinn says kids learned a lot, too, about themselves and are resilient. He says many schools and outside programs are offering extra support so students can make up for some of that lost time. There always is a chance to catch up. um, And even if it's just to get to the bare minimum of what a student might need. Back in New York, Haskell says she's seen the change this year. Joseph, who once struggled with remote learning, is now homeschooling, taking online classes and turning his grades around. He's doing really well. He's getting uh, all A's. Experts say summer may be the best time to keep your child active in programs or tutoring or just reading on their own to help them reach grade level learning or get a jump on the next school year. Alex? Thank you, Michelle. Our kids have been so greatly impacted. Coming up, how the pandemic has changed, how many of us do our jobs, and how we'll do them from here on out. When COVID-19, two years, one million lives, continues from EBC News. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Listening to an ABC News special, COVID 19, two years, one million lives. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. The pandemic sparked widespread concern about our health, but it also brought with it uncertainty over our finances, massive turnover, supply chain issues, huge swings in the stock market. They've all become almost commonplace in the two plus years since COVID landed on our shores. But the virus may have also sparked a change in the very way we think about our jobs and our relationships to them. ABC's Mike Dubusky takes a look back at what the pandemic did to the economy and what its lasting effects could be. Alex, Casey Weaver didn't always want to be a teacher. I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a while growing up and even into college, I wasn't quite sure. But she did love history, which is why a little more than 10 years ago, she applied for a job at a school in Jacksonville, Florida. U.S. history, so 11th and 12th graders predominantly is who I taught. It wasn't a lifelong dream, but Casey says she did come to love teaching, even if the pay wasn't great. Nobody gets into teaching because you're going to make a lot of money because you know you're not going to. You get into it because you like the top. You, you like what you're doing, you care about what you're doing. She made it work, though. I was a teacher for 12 years. I stuck it out for a while. <laughs> and she wasn't the only one making it work during that time. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He says as late as 2019, early 2020, the American economy was doing pretty well. It was good. Uh, unemployment was very low. We had a 3.5% unemployment rate. It felt like wage growth was starting to pick up for a lot of workers. Uh, the stock market was very strong. Interest rates were low. The housing market was healthy. But those good economic times are not how we're likely to remember 2020. And tonight, the staggering loss on Wall Street. The Dow falling a record 2,000 points. Experiencing its largest point drop in history. More and more Americans are joining food lines and pouring into food banks. So March, April of 2020, was they were disastrous. We lost uh, 22 million jobs in those two months. Unemployment surged to 15, 16%, probably higher than that appropriately measured. In other words, it felt like the floor was falling out of the economy. Casey was able to avoid the worst of that and hold on to her job. But that doesn't mean things were easy, especially not at first. I think we're working 12 hour days for about a week, just trying to get everything set up, which you know, you gotta do what you have to do to get everything set up to make sure that we're not failing the students. She says eventually students adapted and so did she. After the ball got rolling and the kids got used to what the new normal was, I guess, for the rest of the school year. And once I got used to it, I actually enjoyed it a lot more. Now, teaching through a computer brings with it its own host of challenges, technical issues, students who have trouble focusing, to say nothing of the general stress of having to do your job while living through a global crisis. But Casey says in that time, she actually discovered something about her job that she didn't fully see before. For me, I think I've thrived a bit in that environment, which I know... Not everybody did, but I was one of the ones that did. And she says that's because working from home shined a light on exactly what she was missing when she was commuting into school every day. It was just better being at home where I could spend more time with family and my, my pups. So I enjoyed that a whole lot more. And 
it felt like I had more time to enjoy what I wanted to do while also still being present for the students and still teaching. While Casey's work-life balance was stabilizing towards the end of the school year, so too was the economy, at least compared to those disastrous early days. And that's because of government intervention, says Sandy. Made all the difference. I mean, that was key to keeping the economy together as well as it's kept together. He says that all started with the passing of a $2 trillion package of coronavirus relief measures. Tonight, with that massive bill now through the Senate and making its way through the House and eventually... You may remember the CARES Act, which passed in late March 2020. So just a few weeks after the, the pandemic hit with full force. And then there was a, a number of different legislative packages that were passed all the way through to the American Rescue Plan in the March of 2021. So that one-year period... Uh, lawmakers provided over $5 trillion in support to the economy. That's uh, 25% of GDP. That's massive. I mean, it's double what was provided during the financial crisis to the economy. But trouble was on the horizon. So we've seen uh, inflation pick up here for lots of different reasons. And workers are saying, hey, you know, you got to pay me more to compensate for the fact that I got to pay a lot more to fill my gas tank. It's not just the gas that's getting more expensive. It's the car itself. And Zandi says that's because of a very important piece of technology that goes into nearly every modern car. Malaysia, uh, where a lot of chips, semiconductors are produced, those factories there shut down. Savings up to $8,000. More offers at TorahofSantaFe.com. More than 9,000 miles away, Buddy Espinosa is feeling the effects. He's the general manager of Toyota of Santa Fe in New Mexico. And yes, he has his own local car dealership commercial catchphrase. Toyota of Santa Fe, where you have a buddy in the business. Buddy's business has been strong in recent months, driven by the fact that regardless of what's happening with the global economy, people still need cars. Anytime that there's a shortage in, in the supply and a, a high demand, it drives the business for sure. But because of those supply chain tie-ups, new cars are in short supply, and they sell fast. But he says for the better part of a year, he's only had about six new cars on the lot at any given time. Almost all manufacturers right now are, are pre-selling inventory. Everything that's coming in is already sold. With new cars hard to find, that leaves many prospective car buyers with only one option, a used car. They're almost the price of new cars, in some cases more than new cars, and I don't foresee that going away anytime soon. And this all has ripple effects far beyond the car world, says Zandi. That kind of dynamic played out in uh, lots of markets. And so uh, the scrambled supply chains have been critical to the shortages and you know the, the, the high prices we're observing right now. So while all that was happening, for Casey, a new school year was starting. And it looked a lot different from just a couple of months previous. There was this sense that COVID's not really happening anymore. You have to, we're going to pretend like it's not an issue. What's more, she now had to teach kids in the classroom, plus those who were still dialing in remotely. The students didn't know what to expect from one day to the next. Casey wasn't the only one going back to work either, so were parents. The number of parents that would send their kids to school when they knew their kids were sick because they didn't have daycare for them, or they didn't have an option, they didn't have anybody to watch their kid. That happened quite frequently. And for Casey and her colleagues... All of that equals burnout. We always called it the April feeling where you just need the end of the school year to eat here because you're worn out. It's been a long year, you're worn out. That April feeling came in September. So at the end of that school year, after her students made it through state testing, Casey quit her history teacher job. It came a point where 12 years later, I think I'm ready to just cut my losses and look, start looking out for more me. She's now a real estate agent. It's been working out for her. In two months this year, I made half my teacher salary for a year, so... 
I think it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> I think I made the right choice. And it may be more than just money. In this case, it could be part of a larger renegotiation of our relationship with work. Remember those early days of the pandemic when Casey found herself with all that extra time? Well, now... I can get home a little early to make sure I have time to cook, or I can get home a little bit earlier to do things I want to do. I 100% think this was the right call for me. And for countless other Americans. Alex? Thank you, Mike. ABC's Mike Dubusky. Up next, how the pandemic put the spotlight on disparities in the U.S. When COVID-19, two years, one million lives, continues. You are listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, two years, one million lives. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. While COVID was a risk to all of us, it certainly did not impact every person the same. The virus brought to the forefront many disparities that already existed, as well as new ones that came to light in the early days of the pandemic, including age, race, and even political affiliation. ABC's Lionel Moise takes a closer look at how the virus impacted communities across the country differently. Please take care of my son, uh, Noel, because I might not make it here. Gino Cabrera reading the last text message he got from his brother Christian before he passed. The 40-year-old was healthy and had no pre-existing condition, so it was a shock when he was hospitalized with COVID. Their family, like so many others, had debates about the vaccine. My other brother is, is somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. While Gino tried to convince the other six siblings in their Filipino family to get vaccinated, Christian eventually promised he would get vaccinated vaccinated after the holidays, but it was unfortunately too late. He died in January, just two weeks after being hospitalized. In his final moments, Christian regretting his decision. He sent me a text message um, and he had uh, told me that he can't breathe. Um, I wish that I had gotten vaccinated. If I had, if I could do a over again, I will um, do it in a heartbeat. To save my life. As the U.S. reaches the grim milestone of one million lives lost to COVID, it's more than just a number. These are one million Americans who are no longer with us. And for doctors like Dr. Rachina Bassett McCain, who's an emergency medicine physician and medical director of the McNair Emergency Department in Houston, Texas, it is still tough to see young patients fighting for their lives. I had a young Hispanic patient. He, I believe, was in his 40s. He initially came in with just a little bit of shortness of breath and within the hour of me arriving to my shift and seeing him, he had coded and died. CDC data shows a major difference in the risk of infection, hospitalization, and death by race. Native Americans are over two and a half times more likely to die of COVID compared to white Americans. CDC data shows African Americans are more than one and a half times more likely, Hispanic Americans 1.1 times more likely. And while vaccines have been touted as our way out of the pandemic, getting people to get a shot has been difficult. So many instances in medicine where black bodies were used for experimentation. Dr. Bassett McCain pointing to the Tuskegee syphilis study. Not just with COVID and not just with vaccines, but there is a deep sense of unsureness when it comes to physicians, medical providers, and the entire establishment. She says that's why it's so important for her to be vocal in the community beyond the ER. If the message is coming from someone like you, it makes it a little bit more relatable. In New Jersey, Bergen County was ground zero in the state for cases initially, forcing health officials there to scramble to educate people to mask up, wash hands, and eventually get vaccinated. But this was not one size fits all, as every town and borough has different demographics. We're about 35% Asian, and of that 
It's predominantly Korean. We're about 22% Latinx. Judah Ziegler, mayor of the borough of Leonia. He realized how important it was to communicate with residents in their native language to build trust. Every message that went out about the pandemic was sent out in English, Korean, and Spanish. Javon Romney-Rice is a councilwoman for the township of Teaneck, and she saw COVID hit close to home. I lost two members of my church who happened to also be part of my community. While Teaneck is very diverse, vaccination centers did not reflect that. I would notice that there weren't a lot of people of color in lines. Councilwoman Rice says vaccine hesitancy was a legitimate concern in her area, but that wasn't the main issue. An access issue in terms of the system. Everything was done online. This was noticed countywide. Lynn Allgrant is VP of Planning, Development and Communication at Greater Bergen Community Action. She was also getting calls from doctors saying they weren't seeing people of color in line as she was getting calls from residents saying they had no way of getting an appointment. We were able to shift strategies. They worked with sites to reserve a block of appointments for the most vulnerable. We were filling those appointments through our grassroots network. All of them, African-American, Latino, the Korean-American population, child care workers. Many had no internet access due to finances, and a lot of the elderly population did not use computers. Across New York City... Cheers for essential workers each night while parts of Jersey lit candles to thank those risking their lives while we all hunkered down at home. But not everyone had the luxury of staying home. Black and brown people may not have had jobs where they could have worked remotely. The pandemic has also been highly politicized. An ABC News analysis of federal data found that on average, the death rates in states that voted for Trump were more than 38 percent higher than in states that voted for Biden even after vaccines were available. We turned something that should have been a public health crisis into a political crisis and pitted our communities against each other. But moving forward, Dr. Bissette McCain urges us to acknowledge the past to ensure equity is a pillar of response efforts in the future. As for anyone who's still on the fence about vaccination, Gino Cabrera saying do not wait until it's too late. The unimaginable pain and suffering that we are going through right now could have been prevented had our brother had gotten vaccinated. Alex, ABC's Lionel Moyes. Up next, healing the healers through comfort on a rolling cart. I'll explain when we continue on COVID-19, two years, one million lives from ABC News. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, two years, one million lives. Once again, here is correspondent Alex Stone. Comfort is something many families who have lost a loved one in these last two years have not had, nor have the healthcare workers who every day go to work and have tried so hard to save lives. Reverend Hannah Reza is a chaplain here at Cedar sinai Hospital in Marina Del Rey, California. It's her job to bring comfort to those who have been hurting. The two years have been incredibly hard as, as across the board as a has been for everybody, especially in the healthcare community. And so the Reverend and her team wanted to figure out a way to help the staff at Cedar sinai get a moment of healing or relief. And their answer is something that has everybody here taking notice. Tell me about the cart that you have. Everybody okay. knows about your cart. Everybody <laughs> talks about your cart. Tell me about your cart. All right, so I kind of go by themes of like what season it is, but this is the spring cart. That Around the hospital, Reverend Reza steers her spiritual cart through the hallways, a three-tiered cart meant to promote self-care and prevent worker burnout. So the top tier is more interactive, and by interactive, it's, it invites the staff to come into that space to be expressive. 
So this is our little LED tabletop <laughs> prayer tree, or I, I say prayer slash hope tree, which practice makes the most meaning for the staff. And it's also the thing that, you know, allows the, the writer to express what they want and kind of put out there. Hospital workers are invited to write a prayer or a thought on a piece of paper and attach it to the tree. Also on board the cart, there is a vase of water. Don't we all have stuff that we don't really want to put out there on the tree? Um, and so it's whatever that is a burden in your life or that is pressing on your heart. Well, I encourage the staff to write on here, fold it so nobody sees it and dissolve it. And it, it dissolves into the water and it's symbolic and it's a practice of letting go. The Reverend invited me to take part in the ritual, writing a thought or a burden on a piece of dissolving paper. I write my message of something I want to release. Put it in here and then stir it up. Yeah. Wow, it just disappears. So now symbolically, where does that go? I think each individual person has their own way of releasing and what this means for them. Her card is full of candles, snacks, and teas that staff can use to relax. It's about healing the healers. In the height of COVID with so many things going on, just so depleted, there's a lot of work to be done in the unit. Rather than inviting to come to us, we ended up going to them. And there's just a significance of meeting them where they are and bringing spiritual care support where they are. And it, it, it had allowed the staff to feel seen and to be recognized. And not one more thing that they had to do to, to come out of their environment. Reverend Reza now a beacon of hope and relief in the hallways of Cedars-Sinai. And with that, the past two years have been incredibly difficult around the world, but there is now hope. An analysis by the Commonwealth Fund found around 1.1 million lives have been saved in the U.S. by COVID vaccines. We have the tools to fight back. For my colleagues and producer Ryan Kessler, I'm Alex Stone, and this has been two years, one million lives from ABC News.